0: Well, hope everybody's doing well. We've been uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians lately, and um, today's no different. I'm continuing that. So we're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and to be honest, like as I was reading this, I was like, oh my gosh, where am I going to go with this one? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some uh, interesting uh, things in there, but, I, you know, I always like to think of, what is my takeaway with this? What am I, you know, what, what, am I, uh, what do I really want people to get from the message that I'm going to preach? And this, one, this, this chapter was a challenge. There's some challenging things to talk, to, to talk through in this uh, passage, and... Um, uh, And I think some, some uh, portions of it that oftentimes are taken out of context, too. So, um, but so, so what I want to do is, is, is I'm going to kind of, I'm just going to start at the beginning of the chapter and just go through, and I'm just, the, the first part, I really just want to just kind of break it down and talk about what is, what is this really saying? And then I think somewhere around the middle, towards the end of the chapter, I really feel like Paul gets, the, the author of Corinthians, gets to the meat, the, the heart of what he's really trying to um, uh, to communicate. And so when I, when I get there, that's where I'm going to kind of hang out. So you just kind of bear with me for the, just a little bit. Hopefully, maybe you'll find this this, this first part interesting just breaking it down. But really where I'm going to hang out is once we get kind of more towards the middle to end of this chapter. But um, the first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay? So let's... I just want to break that down for just a second. Now, If (laughs) uh, it's it's clear from this chapter that Paul is answering some questions that the Corinthians have, and, and that's the part of this that we don't see, right? We don't see the questions that the Corinthians had previously asked Paul. Now, we can speculate, and we can kind of say, well, infer from based on what uh, Paul is saying what the questions were, but he starts out concerning the matters about which you wrote. So clearly there were some things that the Corinthians wrote to him and he's going to now answer those questions. And so I would imagine here that the question, and, and if you kind of read through this first part of Corinthians, which we'll, 1 Corinthians 7 that we'll, we'll get to, the question was likely something along the lines of, um, Paul, isn't it better then a man just remain single, not take a wife, just devote himself to the lord isn't that the highest calling that that, that a man can have and paul's sort of like, well, sure it 's a good thing it's good for a man to stay single, not to have the sexual relations with a woman, not to not to um, and right now he's he's not even really talking about sexual impurity he 's talking about taking a wife and having uh, and, and having that relationship with her. And he's saying, sure, that's, that can be a good thing. If you are, are able, if you're someone who is able to stay single, devote yourself to the Lord, not take up a wife, go for it. That's great. But, and this takes us to verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So in other words, is it good for someone to remain single? Sure. Great, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody is wired that way. So if you're not, don't sit there and and try to go against your nature, burn with this lustful passion. Each, Each man should take his own wife. Each wife should take her own husband. That's okay. Then at this point, this next... Part These next few verses, Paul gives a few guidelines. It's kind of like he takes a sidebar and says, and hey, let's talk about marriage for just a second. Verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So when you marry, your body is no longer your own. You've given, the, 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 the husband has given his authority of his body to his wife and vice versa. And he says, it's, not, it's important not to deprive each other. Unless you agree to do so for a period of time, that's okay. But, but as a married couple, it's important to stay close to each other, right? Because that, that really does keep the devil from being able to come in and tempt you. And it allows, allows you to stay connected as a couple. So then moving on in verse 6, it says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise the self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And, and, and some people, I've heard some people take, take this, what I would say is out of context, and, and say that, you know what? It is exactly probably what the Corinthians were asking. It's best to stay single. That is the best thing that you can do. And, 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 and if you get married, you're just not quite as... as as um, uh, you don't quite as have a high, as high of a calling as somebody who chooses to remain single. That's not what this is saying. That's not what Paul's communicating here. He's reiterating again, if you can handle being single, then great, there are some great benefits. There are some great things, some, that you're able to devote yourself to the Lord in a way that somebody who's married may not have time for. See, the Corinthians were having this same argument. They were saying that, uh, that over, over which was greater. Was it greater to stay single? Was it greater to stay married? And Paul's saying that, you know what? Stop arguing over which is greater. Everybody has their own gifts. If you can handle being single, do it. If not, get married. And in this next uh, portion, starting in verse 10 that I'm going to read, it seems that the Corinthians have asked Paul, there's a different question that the the Corinthians have asked Paul. They've asked him what to do when a believing spouse, somebody comes to Jesus and and they have a non-believing spouse. What are they supposed to do? And his response, he starts by really just talking about marriage in general, what God's view of marriage is. So Let's read that. In verse 10, it says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain married or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. God's view of marriage is until death do us part. And I think that these days, in, in, in this society especially, it's, it's becoming increasingly easy to view marriage in a less permanent way. You hear the phrase, I just, I just don't love the person anymore, so we're getting separated. And love is too often viewed as just as simply a feeling, when love is so much more complex than that. So many more layers to love than just a feeling. Feelings come and go. I'm not saying the feelings are not there. In fact, hopefully the feelings are, 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 are there throughout your whole life, but there will be times where you may not have those feelings. What do you do then? I remember in my early twenties going to a teaching on marriage once, um, many years before I was married. And uh, and I think the, the, the people who were there teaching it, they'd been married for some 40-plus years, something like that, um, for, for, for quite a long time. And, um, and he was telling a story about one time early in, his merit, in their marriage when they were having an argument, and they were really struggling, and he, actually, he looked at her and said, I think maybe we made a mistake. And her response was, maybe we did. Now, what happened between that moment when they made those statements and being happily married 40 years later? They worked on it. They worked through their issues. Divorce wasn't an option. That was not even in in their vocabulary. If you go into a marriage and even have in the back of your head that that divorce could be an option if things just don't work out, then then I can tell you most likely you're probably going to get a divorce one day. Because marriage can be hard, and love takes work. But if you're committed to loving your spouse, even when they drive you crazy, even when the feelings aren't there, then the love that you build with that person will go so much deeper. Now, I'm coming up on my four-year anniversary, and um, yeah, here just in, in a couple weeks here, less than two weeks and there are many of you in here who um, probably 10 times that. <laughs> a lot more who are who are going on 30, 40 years. Plus. Really, you should be preaching this to me. <laughs> so, I'm going to have a seat. What? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But what I would encourage you is if you are in your marriage right now and you are struggling, that's okay. Struggles are going to happen. If you're struggling, talk with one of these people who have made it work through thick and thin because guess what? I know for a fact that many of these people would love to help mentor your relationship. It's okay to need help. Now, I also want to say that there are always extreme cases where situations where there's infidelity, situations where there's abuse. And in those situations, I'm not telling you, stay married to that person. What I would tell you is to do the journey with somebody. Don't just make those decisions on your own. Don't just think that you're on your own in those situations. Talk to somebody, do the journey with somebody. That's what I would tell you in those situations. And um, I also want to say this, that God's grace and love Extends to you regardless of your past. If you've been divorced, there is absolutely no condemnation from him or here. God loves you, yeah. God loves you, and we love you. You will never experience condemnation here, and if you do, please come and tell me so I can smash some heads. But, no. <laughs> but I'm not here to lay judgment on what's happened in the past. What I am here to do is to offer a challenge that things can be different in the future. Okay, so after Paul prefaces his answer to this question by talking about God's view of marriage, he dives in to to, to what the question actually was. What to do when you have somebody who is married to a non-believer? In verse 12, it says, to the rest I say, I, not the... Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So I'm guessing, it seems that probably many in the Corinthian church would have thought that, you know what, if you're married to a non-believer, the right thing to do to stay holy is to get a divorce. But Paul says no. No. As the believing spouse, if your non-believing spouse will stay with you, stay with them. God may use you to draw the other into relationship with him. But if the non-believing spouse decides to divorce you, you're, re- you're released. It's not, you know, it's, you're not enslaved to this and like, uh-oh, what, what am I supposed to do? They made, they made their decision. Now in this next section, this is really where I feel the essence of the chapter and what Paul's really trying to communicate here is. And so I want to hang out just just, just a little bit um, in this next section. It's in verse 17. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See, up until Jesus died and rose again, salvation really was through the Jews. And following the law, including circumcision, that was key. If you were not a Jew, There was still salvation, but it was through the Jews. You joined that community. And if you wanted to be holy and set apart, you had to be circumcised. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, the early church began to work out what life in Christ meant. That was a huge debate. If people come to Christ, do they have to be circumcised? That was a huge debate. Read through Acts. You'll see that there's some, there's some pretty intense arguments over that. And what Paul is saying here is that it doesn't really matter. If you came to Jesus, you were already circumcised, great. If you came to Jesus and you weren't, don't worry about it. How often, how often do we place our identity in our perceived holiness. It's easy to place our identity in the things that we do. If I feel that I'm doing well, maybe I've been consistent in reading God's word, or in general, I feel that I've been able to help other people well, or I've been able to do good things. I mark off my good deed each day. Then I feel good about myself. I can identify myself as a good person. On the flip side, if I'm struggling, maybe I've lashed out at my spouse, got impatient with a friend, or in general, if I just look at my past, I can be like, you know what, I've made a lot of mistakes. And then, then, then perhaps instead I identify myself as just not good enough. For some, this can change from day to day. For others, it might be an ongoing feeling of one way or the other. in verse 20 paul says each one should remain in the condition in which he was called were you a bondservant when called do not be concerned about it but if you gain your freedom avail yourself of the opportunity for he who was called in the lord is a bondservant as a bondservant is a freedman of the lord likewise he who is free when called is a bondservant of christ so here paul is speaking to people or slaves. Now one thing is Paul isn't really talking to the issue of slavery at this point. He's not really condoning it or condemning it and this uh, uh, that's not really what he's talking about. He's just talking to slaves who are in that particular situation. And he's telling them not to be concerned with the fact they're slaves. Don't worry about it. You can be a freedman in Christ. See, we often I Find our identity and our circumstances in life. If we're in a job that we hate, or maybe we don't even have a job, then perhaps we view ourselves as failures. We're doing well in our job. Our career is going in the right direction. Hey, we're successful. identify myself as a successful person. We place our identity on whether we are in a relationship or not. We place our identity on whether do we own a home or do we rent a home. We place our identity on how others view us. We place our identity on so many things that are so fleeting. Today I may hate my job, tomorrow I may love it. Today I may be in a relation, I may not be in a relationship tomorrow I may find someone I may feel like a success today but tomorrow I may feel like a failure None of these things should be intertwined in our identity Look at the next verse in verse 23 it says you were bought with a price Do not become bondservants of men So brothers and whatever condition each was circumcised uncircumcised slave free great job no job in a relationship not in a relationship whatever condition you were called to you were called let there let him there let him remain with god we were all bought with a price And therein lies our identity. Our identity is in Christ. God sees our heart. He sees our heart when there's good things in there. He sees our heart when there's bad things in there. And guess what? He loves us through it all. Stop placing your identity in the things that you do or the circumstance that you find yourself in. And start seeing yourself through God's eyes. God loved you enough to pay a huge price for you. The price of his son. God sees you as worth it. Let your identity be there. What are we talking about here? We're talking about contentment. In Philippians chapter four, verse 11, it says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment. That is what God is calling us to. doesn't matter what your life was like. It doesn't matter what your life is like. Contentment can be found regardless of your situation. Paul was writing this while he was in prison. And he was content. Because contentment is found in Jesus. It's found in drawing closer to him. Life, life's going to have its ups and downs. In the highs, enjoy them. Highs are great. Not that kind of highs. <laughs> Enjoy the highs, but don't let those things go to your head. Don't become dependent on the highs. Find contentment in Jesus. In the lows, it's okay to grieve. It's okay, it's okay to say that, you know what, I wish that this was not the case in my life right now. But don't become discontent because things aren't going your way. Trust in Jesus. Find contentment in him. That's what we're called to do. Can I have the worship team come forward? We're going to take the offering here in just a second, but... um, even in that, don't we, isn't it easy to become discontent because we feel that finances are not going the way that we want them to? And if that's you right now, why don't you just... I think that sometimes just giving something can be just a step of faith to say that, okay, God, I'm trusting you in this, even though it's not going the way that I want. So, Lord, I just pray a blessing over this offering, Lord. Would you, would you help us to use it to further your kingdom? And would you multiply it in Jesus' name? Amen. I'll, ushers, go ahead and uh, pass the bags, please. We're gonna sing uh, sing a song. It's um, it's called "More Than a Friend," and it's it's. I think one one thing about this song that has always struck me is that first line. In the song, it says, "In the quiet." Of my soul. Sometimes I just stop right there and I'm just like, it my soul is not quiet. (laughs) I don't know about you, but there is just so much going on that sometimes I just need to quiet my soul and hear from God. And so in talking about contentment and allow and finding our identity in Jesus, finding our contentment in Jesus, why don't we just start there? quiet our souls, and listen to Jesus. Let's worship.